said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my goodness passes by, sorry, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there in front of him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And from Jonah 4, 1 to 11. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. 
It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Well, I'll tell you what, it is great being in a church where you like hear the voice of God as if he's just there, like <laughs> amazing. This is a new experience for me and I'm like, whoa, no wonder you guys are sitting back there and it's just us up here, like, <laughs> but seriously, um, I'm not starting until you all move, no, it's a, let's um, get rid of that one. Uh, I mean, it did sound a lot like uh, someone I used to know called Matthew Naylor, but anyway, uh, so uh, it's good. Let's, uh, let's get into things. Now, this next slide, hopefully, then the next one. Here we go. I don't know if you've ever seen this photo before. Uh, it was taken in 1996 in a town called Ann Arbor, Michigan. This is Keshia Thomas. She's one of a group of locals who had gathered to protest a Ku Klux Klan rally. They are on one side of the fence, Ku Klux Klan on the other. But when a fellow protester shouted into a megaphone, there's a Klansman in the crowd! It was a moment of chaos. The man, he was wearing a Confederate flag T-shirt, had an SS tattoo on his arm. He tried to run away, but the protesters grabbed him, threw him to the ground, started beating him. It's a now famous uh, picture moment, captured on film by photographer Mark Brunner. Cashier Thomas jumped between the protesters beating him and the Klansmen shielding him from their blows. Keshia Thomas was 18 years old. Not only to become one of Life Magazine's photographs of the year, but this act of uncomfortable compassion, it started a whole movement in America. So here's my question. Has an act of compassion ever caused you to put yourself in the line of fire for an enemy like this? I mean, has compassion, have you ever been so moved, reflexly moved, to put yourself in the line of fire for an enemy? I mean, let's be honest, we, we may do it for our kids, family, maybe certain friends. But what about for someone who just arouses anger at the mere mention of their name? For someone who maybe has harmed you or your family, has betrayed you or your family. Someone who you think deserves punishment, deserves jail, deserves to rot in jail or worse. See, this is the sort of uncomfortable compassion on display by Cashier Thomas, isn't it? This man who spent his whole life devoted to hating her it makes me very uncomfortable because if I'm honest, I know this would not have been my reflex action as an 18-year-old. And if I'm really honest, I'm not sure it even would still be today. But what about you? What might an act of uncomfortable compassion look like if someone took a photo of you doing it this week? Don't we follow a servant leader who did the ultimate cashier Thomas, who gave his life for humanity 
at enmity with God. The Apostle Paul sums it up pretty nicely in Romans 5. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were saints, while we were sinners. In the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, Jesus puts it like this. God is merciful to the ungrateful, the unkind. Talking about us. So this is why I've chosen just to sit us in the story of Jonah this morning, because Jonah is a story of very uncomfortable compassion, isn't it? Uh, one of many in, in Scripture. I mean, you might know the story, but for those who don't, let me just remind you quickly. Uh, Jonah is uh, commissioned by God to go to a city called Nineveh. It's the capital city of Assyria. And he's commissioned to preach God's coming judgment on the city. Now, the people of Assyria and Nineveh, they're a people with an even worse track record than the Ku Klux Klan. God-haters, Jew-haters, they'd done unspeakable things to Israel, maybe even to Jonah and his own family. We don't know. But we can imagine it. So just think, so right now, the voice of God who's alive in this church says to you, go to this people, this place, and preach in my name that my judgment is coming. Are there any people or places you think, no, just not that place, no way, Lord, not that people? Of course, Jonah has a dummy spit. He sets off on a pagan ship to get as far away from Nineveh in the presence of the Lord as he can. But why? But of course, as the story unfolds, Jonah can't escape God's living presence or escape God's mission for him. God, so to speak, always gets his man or woman. <laughs> and so by means of a storm, uh, sailors throwing Jonah overboard at Jonah's encouragement, <laughs> the big fish that's sent by God to sort of save Jonah, he's in the belly of the fish, the whale for three days, and then God causes the whale to vomit him out onto dry land after Jonah repents at the end of chapter two. And finally, God recommissions Jonah to go to Nineveh and he goes. And he proclaims God's coming judgment that they are about to be overturned by the Lord in 40 days time. Now, stunningly, this city of more than 120,000 people, including the king, from the poorest to the greatest. They're all cut to the heart. They're convicted by Jonah's message of God's coming judgment. And they repent. That they turn to God. And then we're told that God relents from destroying them. But how on earth can a good God relent from sending judgment day on God-haters, on people who have persecuted and committed so many atrocities against God's people and humanity? Well, we get the answer to both of the questions there in Jonah 4. The why behind Jonah's anger and actions, but more importantly, the why behind 
God's acts of very uncomfortable compassion in the Bible, why he's even sending Jonah in the first place. So point one in our leaflets, and the text is on the other side of the page, the why behind, God's, uh, behind Jonah's actions and anger. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, we're told, verse four. Now, I don't know about you, we all get upset, uh, angry, for all sorts of reasons. But we're told five times just in this chapter, five times, that Jonah is angry. And how angry at God is Jonah? Verse three, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Now that's one serious dummy spit, isn't it? Like, take my life? It's better for me to die than to live? We're told that Jonah is exceedingly displeased. Literally, it was exceedingly evil in the eyes of Jonah that more than 120,000 people didn't get punished by God. Now, I was trying to help you. How could you appreciate the sort of the numbers of people being talked about here? Well, it's all the boys and girls and grown-ups of Stirling, Allgate and Bridgewater, 10 times over. So as you're in the shops today or this week or whatever, 10 times the number of people in your area. And so verse 2 in chapter 4, for only the second time in the book of Jonah, Jonah prays. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord... I mean, you can imagine he's doing this with a bit of attitude, right? (laughs) Like he's angry. He's really angry. Oh, Lord, this this is what I said when I was yet in my country, that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And oh, oh. Now, have you ever been angry at someone because of their character? (laughs) Because that's what's going on here, isn't it? This is why I did what I did, because I know the sort of God that you are. (laughs) You're always having compassion on people. (laughs) Like, it's just not fair. (laughs) But here's my question. How did Jonah already know this about his God? That the Lord is a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Well, it brings us to point two and what many call the definitive God encounter in the Bible. The most life-transforming question any human can ever explore, and if you haven't seriously explored this question for your life yet, I want to encourage you to start this morning. And here's the question, who is God? Who is the living and true God of the universe? In Exodus chapter three, of course, God reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush as the Lord, a name that means something like, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. It's a name that asserts God's sovereign freedom to be God. He is utterly sovereign and separate over all of creation in the universe. 
He is and can never, ever, ever be indebted to you or anyone. He can never be under anyone's control, owe anyone anything. The name the Lord also reveals his covenant commitment to be the God of his people. He's, at that moment, he's saying to Moses and humanity and the whole universe, I want to be known and I want to know you. In fact, I commit myself to be known, to being known. And of course, he does that through covenant. And so in Exodus chapter 33, when Moses prays that prayer, Lord, show me your glory. If you, if you ever get short, you know, what else could I pray this morning? I reckon this is not a bad one. <laughs> Lord, show me more of your glory. <laughs> show me more of who you are. He's asking God to show him the true truth of who he is, isn't he? So he knows God's name, but he wants to know what God is like. And of course, we know that to know one's character is to know who the person truly is, of what it's like to be in a relationship with them, of what we can expect from them. What does God say in Exodus 33, 19? I will make some of my, no, actually not some, all of my goodness, all my character pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God's revelation to Moses at Sinai here at Exodus 34, first little fun fact for this morning, it's the fullest description of God's character that God gives in all, in all the Bible. Here. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? And again, second little fun fact for the morning. Did you know this is the only time in Scripture where the Lord repeats his personal name twice? The Lord, the Lord. It's like God is saying again to Moses, look, I really, really, truly am this God who will sovereignly show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, if you know anything about this part of the Bible... <laughs> Do you remember what's just happened leading up to this event in Exodus 32? Moses has come down Mount Sinai again for the umpteenth time. He's carrying the first lot of tablets inscribed by the finger of God. And what does he see? All Israel have already abandoned God as their God. They made a couple of golden calves. You know, as Aaron says, oh, Moses, you wouldn't believe what happened. I threw her some gold rings in the fire and out popped a couple of calves. It was amazing. <laughs> Maybe not quite. <laughs> He throws the tablets to the ground. They're broken. Some are in the dust of Sinai. He's angry. God is angry. Moses is 80 years old at this stage. And here he is after everything that he's been through to bring them to this point. They've already proven themselves utterly faithless as God's people. And so despite deserving God's judgment after their faithless and flagrant rejection of him. 
What does God reveal himself to be? Who does he reveal himself to be at this point in Israel's history? I am God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A bit late, Chris, but if you come back into Exodus 34, there is an amazing kids' talk here for you. So the little phrase, slow to anger here in Hebrew, literally means long of nose. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so you think Pinocchio? It's like long of nose. So it takes God a very, very long time to get angry. He's long-suffering in his love. But five positive relational attributes given by God in response to what's just happened about how God has and will always relate to his chosen people. And so again, the first definitive attribute you'd expect given what's just gone down here at, at, the, at the bottom of Sinai, it's not holiness, it's not I'm all powerful, I'm awesome or fearsome, but merciful. The word racham in Hebrew, it literally means compassion, tender mercy, pity. It's related to the Hebrew word for a mother's womb, rachem. It's that gut-churning compassion that's elicited you know, if for those of us who are parents or grandparents, that only our kids, this sort of churning sort of compassion, you'll do anything for them. It's the first attribute that God reveals about himself to the universe. That word gracious, of course, means finding undeserved favour before God's face, despite being guilty and deserving of judgment. I've already talked about what it means for the Lord to be, to be slow of anger. Abounding in steadfast love, or the word here is hesed, hesed, a little three-letter Hebrew word. It's really difficult to define. People who, linguists who know this stuff, they reckon this little word hesed is possibly, it possibly has the largest semantic range of any word in any language in the world. Chesed, a love that is kind, merciful, true, unfailing, loyal, relentless, dependable, unlimited love, generous love, reliable, rock-solid love. God is faithfulness in his chesed love. God remains faithful to his people even when they reveal themselves to be utterly faithless. And so is not biblical history from beginning to end one big love story of this God working out his character with humanity. A God who is abounding in chesed faithfulness to his people again and again and again and again and again and again. That's the story of the Bible. It's a love story. This is how Jonah can say to his God, I knew that the Lord is gracious God, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, steadfast love. Here's the other interesting thing I discovered in preparing this. Did you know that until the prophet Jonah, in the sort of the chronology of scripture, until the prophet Jonah, this character description of God has only ever been used to talk about God's relationship with Israel. Here it's being applied positively to God's relationship, not just with a non-Jewish nation, but a nation who is the greatest enemy of God and Israel of the day. Stunning. 
But Jonah sees it all as exceedingly evil that God should be merciful to such Nazi-like, Ku Klux Klan-like God-haters and evildoers. Are you uncomfortable yet? (laughs) It's pretty uncomfortable stuff, isn't it? Point three. Back to Jonah, the Lord's uncomfortable, compassion lesson for Jonah. Now, I don't know about you, I've sort of sat with Jonah for a few weeks now and I've sort of taken great encouragement from God's very patient dealings with Jonah because if if I'm honest and maybe you want to be a little bit honest this morning with me, there's a fair bit of Jonah in each of us, isn't there? (laughs) I mean, just sort of sit with Jonah, we can imagine there, you know, sitting up there on the hill east of Nineveh, you know, sitting up there on the hill above the the Bridgewater pub looking at us here in Allgate Hall, doing a half, you know. His, his preaching's done, he's, he's, he's completed his mission for God and he's waiting and he's watching to see what's going to happen. And he's, he's stewing on his anger. And, and then we get this really funny end to the book, don't we? Like, you've got the episode with the sun beating down on Jonah. Oh, it's hot. Wakes up the next morning. Whoa, there's a castor oil plant above me. Wow, it's great, awesome. He's in the shade. Wakes up the next day. It's gone. There's a worm. It's coming eating the plant. God, what are you doing? And then he sends this hot easterly wind. (laughs) I'm not even going to begin to explain how God did what he did. That's not the point here. It's just simply that right to the end of this beautiful little book, God doesn't give up on his man. Till the very end, he's trying to teach him about his compassion. And if you are wondering right here, right now, what God is doing with you, God, why is this stuff going on in my life? He's always trying to teach us about who he is. This is who he is and what it means to know him and to be on mission for him. And again, it's it's a lesson of the plant, verses nine to 11. I wonder if God's still in the room. Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yeah, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. There it is again. (laughs) I'd rather be dead. (laughs) And the Lord said, you have compassion or pity for the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should not I have pity? Should not I have compassion for Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 children and adults who do not know their right hand from their left. That is, who do not know about the judgment they are living under. They do not know about my compassion to see them turn and take up my offer of forgiveness and be saved from perishing in hell forever. Jonah, should not I have compassion for these humans as well? Well, what happened to Jonah? I'm thankful to Chris. Gave me this little fun fact this week. Uh, so back in 2014, when you had images of ISIS sort of flooding the uh, screens on July 24th, uh, 2014, um, one of the images that started popping up was how ISIS had destroyed what most historians believe to be the tomb of the prophet Jonah in Mosul, Iraq. And the picture sort of shocked the world. Now, if you know your geography, Mosul was once the Assyrian city of Nineveh. It seemed Jonah lived out his days and died in Nineveh. 
Did Jonah learn the lesson of God's very uncomfortable compassion for his life, for the undeserving Ninevites? But what happened to Nineveh? Well, we can know from the dating of the prophet Jonah, the book, and then the dating of another little prophet um, called Nahum, which was, um, happened about 150 years later, that the people of Nineveh and Assyria were spared God's justice for more than 150 years, so two or three generations or more. But then as prophesied by Nahum, God's patient love for the subsequent generations of Ninevites finally runs out as they turn back to their evil ways and forgot about the Lord. And so Nineveh and all Assyria do eventually experience that part of God's revealed character from Exodus 34:7, where God declared, but I will by no means clear the guilty. And of course, into the New Testament, Jesus teaches, the whole New Testament teaches that every human being lives and dies once, then faces Jesus as their judge or their saviour, Hebrews 9, 27, 28. But that's then, what about now for our neighbours who need to hear the gospel preached so they too can know their right hand from their left? So what is the Lord's uncomfortable compassion for us maybe this morning? When it comes to who God has compassion for to be saved, I've been in this role for a bit over two years now, having sort of been a busy city church planner with the Trinity Network for 12 years with Gita and plenty of people in my windscreen. I grew up on a dairy farm. But if I'm honest, I didn't spare much of a thought. I was too busy, too many people in my front windscreen to care too much about people over the horizon. One of the things I think God has certainly taught, rebuked and corrected me about in this role is that God is impartial. He doesn't play favourites. And neither should I. So who, who am I on earth to, to, to think or to judge someone more worthy of hearing the gospel just because they're living in a city or the country or overseas for that matter? Am I or you for that matter really about to do a Jonah and say... Oh, it's a bit far, Lord, and I'm pretty busy at the moment. I've got a fair bit on my plate and, you know. And look, the economics don't add up. I mean, the price of fuel, <laughs> um, it's too costly and I'd have to give up too much. You know, the better schools are in the city, my kids, and better health care's in the city. Mm. You know, one of the reasons I think BCA is in really good shape at the moment is not because not only because of my boss, the National Director, Greg Harris, he's a bloke, he's got great compassion for people everywhere, especially in the country, in remote areas. He works his guts out. But it's also especially because of some of those ordinary men and women, I think they should pop up on screen again, got that photo again. These are just gone out in SANT. Willing to go the distance, to go to places far away from family and the conveniences of a city. Because they just know that without someone to teach the gospel to the boys and girls and grown-ups in these places, they will perish without God for all eternity. Now, having been with the Trinity Network for, for a good time as well, I can say the same thing. You know, about Paul and Sue Harrington, the leaders of the network, about the pastors and the planners in the network. The men and women and families, the, the, the lay leaders... 
great compassion for the lostness of people. I mean, think about it. How else does a network plant two churches during COVID when everyone else is closing their church down? (laughs) It's because people are willing to sacrifice, go the distance, do the hard stuff. And that's that's what I love about being part of the Trinity family. It's what I love about BCA. But here's the thing, you know, and these are some of my heroes. I hope, you know, Gita and I are powering on long as strong as Ruth and Lee when we're, you know, their age, stage of life. I just reckon they've worked something else out, though, about the message of the cross for their own life. It's that God's compassion is always uncomfortable and costly. Can, and look, if you could help me afterwards, just come on and just please show me anywhere where Jesus left heaven, became a man, rejected, suffered, died. Was there any part of that where it wasn't particularly uncomfortable? <laughs> that wasn't costly to the Son of God? Now, if you're a parent, you already know this. All love is uncomfortable. It's costly. It's never not going to be uncomfortable for us if we're serious about entering into and doing hesed, doing compassion for people. It's never not going to cost you as a follower of Jesus. There is no other sort of Christian disciple that I can find in the Bible than the costly, uncomfortable disciple, the one who is bearing their cross for Jesus, for the sake of the lost. The Halliburtons at Alice Springs, you've got Daniel and Laura. Do you know that um, Daniel's got some stuff going on in his life, nearly discovered that he desperately needs uh, a speech pathologist and an OT, but there are none in Alice, none in Alice. They've got to go to Melbourne or Adelaide or, or zoom them in or something. But they're committed to staying in Alice for the sake of the loss there. You might have heard some things about Alice Springs this year. Well, what about you? Could you go and be that Christian someone? And if you talk to the pastor, Christian Slack, he says, oh, the difference of just one Christian who gets it, turning up, the difference that they can make, not just in the town, but in our church, like, Wow. Or the McDonald's, six hours from Adelaide, Roxby. Their kids, all their medical appointments have had to drive down for them. So they are so convinced of staying because of the Taylors and the Cliftons and the Gemmas and the Lokis. They're now counting the cost of sending their 15-year-old son to live in Adelaide to go to school. Next year it'll be another child. Because how else will they hear unless they stay and tell them? Every year, the school in Roxby is looking for 20 teachers. There's a really well set up health system. They're looking for doctors, para health people. In fact, anyone. Then, of course, there's Naomi, who you support, Naomi Island. Comes from a white collar church in a white collar area, maybe not a bit like Allgate, Sterling. She hated the heat, hated the humidity, hated camping, hated flies. She had her own health challenges, (laughs) but she went anyway. And I, I did, not showing the video this morning, but it starts off with the saying, I'm just loving it. I love it. 
and God's kindly helped out with, with, with you know, helping her get through the, the health stuff as well. And, and she's so encouraged. She's having the time of her life. Just Mercy. Um, just that next slide, thanks. Just Mercy is a book and movie about Brian Stevenson um, working with prisoners facing the death penalty. It's based on a true story. Brian Stevens shares what he discovered about loving the way of God's mercy and compassion in the book. This is what he says. Mercy is most transformative when it is directed at the undeserving. The power of just mercy, of God's just mercy, is that it actually belongs to the undeserving. Dear sisters and brothers, do we not sit here as the undeserving? Have you been conquered by the uncomfortable compassion of your God. Conquered. John Piper, he's a Christian guy, uh, leader, writer. He says, Christians should care deeply about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. Do you? Who are the undeserving God would have you show costly, uncomfortable compassion to this week, whether it's school, uni, work, community, I don't know. Perhaps the more uncomfortable question, who are the people, oh no, not me, Lord. <laughs> who are the people, the unreached, who you could go and be part of helping to take the good news of Jesus too? This book written by Tim Chester, Unreached, I found it on my shelf, one of the books I haven't read. I'm thinking, why haven't I read this book yet? Growing churches in working class and deprived areas. Hmm, I'm wondering if that's got anything to do with it. Think of the thriving evangelical churches in your area and the chances are that they will be in the nice areas of town and their leaders will be middle class. Oh, he's talking about me. How are the deprived trust home areas, the suburbs the mining communities, ever gonna hear about Jesus unless ordinary men and women like you and me are willing to go. I'm not sure what a picture of you doing uncomfortable compassion is gonna look like. It may not be as extravagant as 18-year-old Keshia Thomas putting her life on the line to save someone who spent his whole life hating her. <laughs> or maybe it will, I don't know. Have it, I pray. Merciful Heavenly Father, um, I want to thank you for the gift of your word, for the gift of Jonah. Uh, it's such a beautiful, amazing story of how deep and far-reaching is your love for the nations. But yet it's also a story of exceedingly very uncomfortable compassion uh, for me, uh, for believers, of what it means to actually be conquered by your kindness and completely sold out to doing whatever it takes to make sure people get to hear the good news of Jesus. I pray you'd help each and every one of us in the room to keep grappling with that question as we leave here today in our conversations, our prayers. Uh, please will you open our hearts in the way that you opened your heart in order to love us. We pray this in Jesus' name.